Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve Podcast. Here's your host. Hey everyone, Dave here from the How We Solve Podcast. I am sitting with Paul, the co-founder of Growth Studio. Growth Studio helps early stage tech companies get product market fit, launch to market, and get funded. Additionally, as a side hustle, Paul also runs Batch One, a London-based independent boutique candle company. Paul, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you gave me a lot of adjectives in that introduction. London-based independent <laughs> boutique candle company. I had to say it uh, five times fast before I got it right. And, but I want to dive into to that, the side hustle. I want to learn more about Growth Studio as well, because I think both those topics are really relevant to our audience. And it's a great case study, what you've learned, applying the principles from Growth Studio to starting your own side hustle that we have here. So let's start first. A little bit about Growth Studio. So, as you mentioned, you help early stage tech companies get product market fit. So, start with the basics to find product market fit for us, if you would. So, I think we try and get early stage companies to understand what product market fit means to them. I think it's very easy to work out whether or not you've got product market fit if you've got sales, traction, big numbers. But when you're an early stage company and you haven't necessarily launched, I think there are indicators of product market fit, and that might be through referrals. It might be through traction testing. It might be through enough customer development to give you confidence that you're solving a need that customers want. And by understanding what value they attribute to your business or product, understanding whether or not you're looking confident for having product market fit. And what we try to do is give early stage companies, before they build anything, launch anything, or spend money or waste money, Give them the confidence that they're applying logic and data to building the right products, to marketing it to the right people at the right price, with the right articulation and the right positioning. And I must say, there's a massive caveat that what we teach to other people and what I've applied to batch one is slightly different. Awesome. Leave us with that cliffhanger. We will get into that. (laughs) Um, So if I understand correctly, you didn't mention any particular formulas or anything like that. I've heard, you know, with product market fit, some people like to say, well, ask how many people, how bad would everyone feel if they couldn't use your business or product anymore? I think it was Sean Ellis or somebody right? Uh, somebody Ellis, like that. Yeah, yeah he, did, he sort of had that approach. Um, you guys are a little bit more, hey, it's not a mathematical formula. It's sort of, there are signs. There are signs. With later stage companies, I think there are some mathematical forms. And Sean Ellis is one. It's, you know, it's a very well-known one. And it's a great one. If you take something away from someone, what impact does that have to their, their day, their life, their enjoyment, their bottom line? The other one is Net Promoter School, which is a really good ongoing indicator of, of how valuable your product or service is to people. But when you don't have a product or service, when you don't have something that people are using, it makes it very difficult to have a a scientific score. And so depending on the type of startup and the type of sector, where they are in their journey, there's a number of different indicators you can use. So we use a lot of, we focus heavily on customer development. We focus a lot on continuous insights driven from surveys, from interviews, from focus groups. We look at traction testing online. So before you've even bought anything, there's a way to work out whether or not you're right targeting and you're right proposition resonates with people and you can drive those people to a landing page where you might not have something to sell, but you can have a sign up or you can ask people to do an action. 
And if you take a number of those different attributes, you can then build up a certain level of confidence that you're solving the right thing and you've got data to support that the market wants that thing. And that makes it very easy for people to get confidence that they're building the right product. But also when you're talking to investors, particularly at early stage, you're, you're giving them a bit more information and a bit more confidence that you're building the right thing. You feel the investors are, I guess, I don't know what the word is, maybe savvy to the extent that product market fit is a big part of the discussion. That is something that they're looking for is important to them. I would love to say yes. I think for, <laughs> I think for, Later stage companies and, and savvier investors, I think particularly in the US on, on the West Coast, I think you know, it's ingrained in the DNA. I think over here, particularly with earlier stage companies, a lot of investors look at, at their gut feel, at their intuition, whether or not they like the founders, whether or not they've got expertise in the market that they're operating in. And what we found from having worked with you know, well over 400 startups globally now is that a lot of times... There's an opportunity for startups to have data, numbers, and facts and stats to support their ask for investment. And a lot of times they don't do that. So what we know are great companies don't necessarily get the investment they need. And on the other side, you've got startups who have a horrible business model that will never make profit because there's fundamental flaws in their business or their assumptions. Tell a very good story and get investment. And what we're trying to do is, is help both sides of the equation, startups and investors, make more confident, sensible decisions and ultimately get you know, more successful businesses and better turn on investments for investors. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. Would you say product market fit, is it is it a moment in time where you go from not having it to having it? Or is it sort of a journey of confidence where you sort of say, I feel we're getting closer, closer, and we're sort of better and better? But is it like a, in it, but potentially a moving target that you are always sort of just? That's a great question. I think it is a bit of both. I think it's definitely. A, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say yes to both. I think you could. <laughs> it can only be one. Go ahead. Yeah, I think you can definitely move towards it. And I think certainly the people we've worked with, the startups, you can start to get indicators that you're on the right path, and you can start to change your 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 targeting, your positioning, your product development, and you know you're getting closer to that sweet spot. Equally, we found startups, particularly in the COVID world, where suddenly they've got product market fit and they've had that moment where you know, they've gone into their analytics tools in the morning, they've gone into their sales or, or Shopify, and suddenly they've realized that the market and the paradigm has shifted and suddenly it's their time. I'd like to say that everyone gets that time where suddenly they, they get product market fit and they can feel it, but I think most people move towards that. But yeah, every now and again, people realize they've suddenly got it. And it's it's a beautiful religious moment, but few and far between people get it. I know. I hope one day to have that feeling myself. I'm always feeling like, no, <laughs> don't have it, don't have it. Tell us about some of the common pitfalls, mistakes startups run into either on the journey to getting product market fit or a misunderstanding of where they're at. There's a few. The ones that we see time and time again is people... People assume they know their, their market. People assume they know the competition. And one of the most frustrating things for, for me and, and for Ryan, my business partner, is you'll sit in a great pitch. You'll ask what the competitive landscape is or what competitive products or solutions are, are there. You get told they don't exist. And within eight seconds on Google, you've you found five. And I think for me, that's always a killer in a startup because it shows that they're not humble enough to realize there's competition. They're not curious enough to see what else is out. And they've made strong assumptions, which means are they going to be detailed enough and selective enough to to see what else is out there? That's definitely one. Second one is 
not being able to articulate their business or their value. And people are very good at talking about their technology, about their blockchain, about their platform. And it's our product first rather than the value that is innately driven by that product. And value propositions still, we tend to need to explain that to people a lot better. And I think there are regional variances, I think, in America, particularly the US startups are a lot more focused on value proposition first and value first. And in other markets, it's more product first. And then the third one is just thinking about the human that needs to use them. People talk about users, about consumers, about business people, but they they fail to understand the actual human person that will be making the decision to pay for their product and what drives them and what motivates them. And just because they should use something doesn't mean they necessarily will. People are odd things and they're not very simple or simplistic in terms of what they could and should do. So people don't focus enough on customer development, I think. Absolutely. And uh, I think you touched upon kind of the jobs to be done mantra, right? That sort of there is a job to be done. There is a reason why somebody is using a product or service. And we have to kind of understand that in order to build for it. So let's shift gears a little bit from the teacher to the student, because you yes. now you have, uh, you've, you've just given us all this expert advice. And now we can <laughs> kind of see, does this, does this man actually practice what he preaches? So um, as I introduced you in the beginning, you, you have a side hustle, a London-based independent boutique candle company called Batch One. Um, so let's just start with uh, the fun stuff. Tell us about how you got started running a candle business. And you yeah, I, I got dumped. Um, I was trying to buy a candle for someone. And I'd spend most of the day in town. I'm particularly tight with my money. And I couldn't even consider spending 40, 50 pounds, you know, 60, 70 dollars on the candle, which is what the nice ones went for. And the cheaper ones were, were pretty tacky. And then suddenly, yeah, my nice weekend was more of a weekend morning in, in a dark room. And having spent the day looking for candles, I, I went on to Google and I couldn't understand how they're so expensive and how big the market was. And I was just a bit curious and trying to keep my, my mind off uh, <laughs> being dumped. So to me, the constituent parts of a candle is a nice bit of branding, a good user experience if you buy it online. But essentially, it's a bit of wax. It's a nice fragrance and it's, it's a nice bit of branding. And one thing led to another. I, I started speaking to a wax producer in North London um, who had very nice quality wax. They were responsibly sourced. I like their environmental credentials. And then I thought, you know, would it look like to, to run a test and do a small batch? I've got terrible design skills. So I went on to, I think, 99designs or Fiverr and I, I crowdsourced some designs that I really liked based on the brief of what candle I would like. Then got some nice designs and found a independent printing shop up in the north wing and it brought everything together and a couple of weeks later i suddenly had two or three hundred prototype candles at my door and when i was doing this one thing i'd noticed in shops that their fragrances seem to be very focused on women and sort of female branding and female fragrance and i was like well none of them really resonate with me a late 30s bloke and so i was like i want masculine designs masculine scents i had stupidly like designed for men in some sort of nod back to toxic masculinity back in the day they sold instantly pretty well. I put them online and I put them into a couple of retailers near where I live. And they shifted pretty quickly, but it was sitting in the coffee shop where they sold and just watching how people touched them, smelt them, looked at them, chose them. Um, 98% of the people that bought them were women. I'd watch them buy them and then run outside and, and sort of rugby tackle them and ask them why they bought them and what the pricing were. And that gave me quite a quick realization that my design for men was completely misplaced, that I could have saved myself quite a lot of design costs if I'd spoken to people at the very start. I realized that my pricing was far too low and, and people attributed much higher pricing to it. So I changed all that and they've been ticking along for the past 
couple of years whilst I've been focusing on growth studio, but that shift that you talked about when you've got product market fit, suddenly COVID happens. I'm stuck at home because I can't travel and 90% of my job is traveling. People are stuck at home, so they want nice things for their home. In the UK, there's been a shift towards in supporting independent businesses and, and these three things aligned and suddenly you know, my, my sales have absolutely shot up without me really doing that much about it, which has been brilliant. Sorry, long introduction to yeah. the batch one. <laughs> uh, very interesting story though. Uh, just to be clear, the dumping was not related to the choice in your candles, right? It wasn't that you chose the wrong candle or something. No, no, no. <laughs> No, no, thankfully not. That was it was more okay. based on my personality. Well, than well, that, that's that, we can we can deal with that. Um, I was actually, I you know, you, you should be saying yes, so that way people out there go, man, I really got to buy a candle from Paul, otherwise I'm going to you know, screw, screw this up in my next uh, attempt at courting. I guess thinking about batch one and you've been going yeah. through the process. Firstly, and I have to ask, does batch one have product market fit? Why or why not? <laughs> um, so I think there's there's two parts. One to answer your earlier question: Do I apply the same thinking to my business? No, I haven't been. Does batch one have product market fit? Not quite. But suddenly COVID has meant a complete shift in the environment that I operate in, and suddenly the market's a lot more open to it. People are supporting independent businesses a lot more than they were. People have been stuck at home, so local businesses particularly have been have been doing very well. And suddenly there are indicators that I'm onto a good thing. So what I decided to do a couple of months ago is go back to the drawing board and treat batch one as if it was a client of mine rather than my baby. And I looked at, you know, do I really have product market fit? And when I was looking at my indicators, you know, have I spoken to customers enough? Are people coming to me organically? Are they repurchasing? How much are they repurchasing? Are they telling each other about it? Are they organically giving me reviews? And some of these I'm nailing without sounding too overly confident, but my repurchase rates are ridiculously high when people buy one candle, they end up buying three, four, five, six a year. I put my prices up because Brexit happened over here and then COVID. So all of my prices went up and that hasn't affected sales. In fact, it's it's weirdly brought some more in. Um, So I think people are attributing the higher price to a better quality product, which is great. I've been looking at referrals. So whenever I sale come in, I've been speaking to the people that bought them and go, you know, how did you hear about it? Predominantly it's referral. And so that gives me confidence that my product is good and it's the positioning's right and the sense are good. What I'm trying to do now is revisit all the online channels. So I've been looking at you know, Facebook, Google, Etsy, other online retailers. And I've been putting a bit more effort into them so I can work out which channels are the best in terms of generating leads and sales, but actually the quality of sales that come in as well. So I'm in the process of resetting all of them up and revisiting them them all. And I think that's going to be really interesting. What's the reasons I thought people would like a candle isn't necessarily the reason people do like a candle. And so talking to people and understanding why they like batch one has been really interesting. And that's impacted everything I've been doing online in terms of photos, scents, in terms of you know, the channels that I sit. People just love a, an independent brand. And so it's been really interesting. People are going from more established brands like Jay Malone and, and Diptyque and the, these high-end, beautiful, beautifully made candles, but very expensive. And people are not using those anymore. They're using mine. And that, to me, is a really good indication that people like it. And listening to customers works, which is what we teach everyone and what I hadn't really been doing in the last couple of years, if I'm completely honest. Yeah, it's a super cool. It's a very interesting kind of case study because 
correct me if I'm wrong because you're the expert, but I think often when we think about product market fit and achieving that, it's almost 90% kind of like, how can we change the product, right? Because we think of the market as sort of fixed and it's kind of there. Yeah. Uh, but what you're talking about with COVID, I mean, this is obviously a very atypical situation, but it's a scenario where the market has actually made a big change. And you said they're valuing independent boutiques more than they would. And not yeah. obviously to undermine the things that you said about the work that you did on product and customer development, stuff like that. But it seems like a little bit of a rare scenario where the market has made a pretty significant change to actually create product market fit where there wasn't before without an yeah. overwhelming change on the product. Am I correct with that? That's Yeah, that's completely true. And I think the way I've run the business, the dream for the business for me is it's fully automated in the sense that I've got everything integrated from my acquisition channels to my website to a fulfillment house. I'm about 80% there, I think. So I want to be able to run it from wherever in the world. So I can sit on a beach in Bali <laughs> in a post-COVID world. Um, I know how silly that suddenly sounds. And be able to run the business. And I think for me, what suddenly happened is with the need for independent businesses, people are searching out independent, interesting brands. I think people... It, my biggest challenge, because I sell online and I sell something that you need to smell, you need to experience, you need to feel, you need to sort of work out how how nice it smells. Is it a natural fragrance or a you know, synthetic smelling one? It's very difficult to do that online. And so my challenge is once I can get someone to buy one candle, they buy multiple candles, um, but it's getting that first purchase. And so the environment has definitely helped me and people taking a punt to buy that first candle and then realizing they like it, I think. COVID has certainly helped me to that respect. If COVID hadn't happened, I think I'd probably be moving the business more into getting into bricks and mortar retail because that's where people can pick it up and smell it. And I still do that locally a little bit because the feedback I get is great. And I love supporting local businesses in my area as well. Ideally, I've, I've chosen a retail business for something that's inherently shouldn't be sold online. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not the typical <laughs> thing you think of being sold in as lying because I think of so much, yeah, buying a candle is smelling it. I mean, it's mm. only so much, you know, one would think to, it's such an important part, I guess. I would be remiss if I didn't ask the one question I feel like is on everybody's mind right now. And that's why are candles so expensive? <laughs> <laughs> I warn you, I could talk about this for hours. So, <laughs> there's a number of things. So, if you get a good quality candle, a lot of it goes into the branding and the panache behind a diptyque, a white company, a, a Joe Malone. They are exceptional brands and they're well made and they, you know, they are great quality candles, but a lot of a lot of the price goes into the branding. Secondly, you've got to have good quality wax. If you've got cheap wax, it burns badly, it looks nasty, it sets your I put a lot of effort into essential oils that go into the wax and they're all natural they're all responsibly sourced and as a consequence they cost a lot of money to put in and the percentages essential oils is quite high as well so the constituent parts can get quite expensive and when you sell direct to retail as well you've got to make your margin um you've got to shift quite heavy products from your warehouse you know over to a shop that costs much the, the retailer then's got to, to mark them up as well so there's a lot of a lot of interim steps between a candle producer and, and the shop that you buy them off the shelf. What I've tried to do is cut some of that out by being just online. You know, I'm able to sell a lot more candle wax per pound. Yeah, that's a horrible way of putting it. I'm going to rephrase that. By, by being able to sell them directly online and cutting out the middleman and the retails, it means that I'm able to sell much higher quality, higher value candles for a lot lower price. And the people who I get my wax from, they make 
they provide wax for people that sell the candles at 50% higher than I do. They're in retail. So I've managed to keep my margins and offer people a, a better quality at lower price. There we go. Perfect answer. Didn't appreciate all the steps uh, that go into it uh, until you actually spell it out about it. shipping heavy candles to the store and the additional markups and things like that. Yeah. So very good to know. Very interesting stories all around, Paul. Thanks so much for sharing those with You're us. Very uh, welcome. If we have a listener who is uh, running an early stage, uh, stage tech startup looking for product market fit and also is sitting in the dark and needs to buy candles, how do they <laughs> find you? So I'm at uh, batch1.co.uk. We're based in the UK. I set up a discount code for you and much to my embarrassment, I can't actually find it. So I'm sure that you can probably put one in the, the notes below that there is a special discount code I've set up particularly for you, David. Um, but yeah, batch1.co.uk. Come and have a look. Enjoy the scents, enjoy the fragrances. Yeah, If you get dumped, I feel your pain, man. <laughs> there we go. There should be a specific candle for that life event. The lonely hearts. Uh, something yeah, some lonely hearts. It smells very <laughs> lavender. Or I don't know. Something that smells nostalgic. Um, good. Okay. Thanks so much, Paul, uh, for being on the show. Thank you very much. Is your sales team spending too much time researching leads and accounts? We take over all the labor-intensive sales development tasks so your team can focus on building relationships and closing more deals. We don't just build lists. We take a strategic research-based approach to find your team qualified leads every day. Ready to start? Schedule your free consultation at taskdrive.com. That's T-A-S-K-D-R-I-V-E.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.